Welcome to the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Here are your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stahl. All right, welcome to our podcast where we cover business in the news and add our legal twist to that business news. My name is Nasser Pasha. Now, Matt Staub. Why are you always laughing at me at every intro? You always pause at a different spot or it's, I don't know, it's just. <laughs> it's for dramatic effect. I notice it and no one else probably does. Yeah, but. no, you're probably right. <laughs> so there's a story that's been popping up and I think the actual story if you i just did a quick google search on this because i was actually trying to find the when the case initiated 90 percent, maybe 95 percent of the stories are about this part with leonardo dicaprio having to testify in this case which is such a minor part of the like to me that's just really like not news at all in the grand scheme of things yeah with the actual substance of the case so let me let me get to the the backstory here so i think it was filed in 2014 right initially yeah, February 2014, a lawsuit was filed by Andrew Green. If you're uh, really into the Wolf of Wall Street, you'll, you might know who that is. But basically, he filed a, had a bunch of causes of action, libel, right to privacy, defamation, things like that. I guess the libel. But basically saying the character PJ Byrne, the actor in the, the Wolf of Wall Street, was a portrayal of him, him being Andrew Green. And he was portrayed very poorly, I think. Let me get, let's see. Portrayed as a criminal, a drug user, and a degenerate through this character in the movie. So naturally, he files this complaint against uh, who? The director? Yeah, or uh, actually a bunch of, not only Paramount, uh, the director, let's see. Red Granite Pictures, some other entities. AP and Way, LLC. So yeah, basically, but basically saying, hey, there, this character in this movie, it was supposed to be me and it was portrayed in a disadvantageous way. And so I'm going to sue you. I think initially it was for 50 million. Right now, I think it's around 25. And it's probably because some of the claims got kicked out, but that's, that's kind of where we're at right now before we get into the Leo aspect of it. Yeah. And, and, and if you guys seen the movie, honestly, I doubt if you remember who this guy is because I had to pull him up. I mean, he, He's definitely a character in the film, but he's not a very memorable character. No. You know what I'm talking about, right? You've seen the film, Yeah, right? the, so I watched a brief little clip. I think probably the most memorable part, well, one of the most memorable parts that he's in is when he's, I think he's the one or at least one of the people that's involved. Remember that they paid that woman to shave her head for $10,000? Oh, okay, yeah. He was one of, or maybe the only person that was the one shaving her head, which he says never happened. The what's his name Jordan Jordan Belfort the the main character you know he says all this stuff happened I'm sure it's somewhat exaggerated but he said that you know the head shaving thing happened so I think that'd be something that'd be easy to prove right I mean like yeah I mean you, you would think but at bottom line is okay so right now I guess he's an investment banker he claims he wasn't or is not drug addicted or misogynistic obnoxious an obnoxious sleazeball that he says Scorsese and Paramount Pictures basically framed him to be. Yeah, so he's not happy about that. Probably also not happy about the fact that I'm sure he has a lot less money than he used to. And so naturally he's going to see, you know, you see this movie, I'm sure he thinks, wow, it's a lot, brings in a lot of money. How can I you know, profit off of this? I'm going to file this lawsuit claiming that they ripped off me and, and did so in 
in a in a bad light. So that's that's where things started in February of 2014. A bunch of the claims got dismissed September of 2015, I believe. But one of the the, the one that didn't was libel. And so now that's where we're at today. <laughs> this is the this is the big story that or this is like I said the ninety percent of all the articles that are posted about Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> yeah, he's dis- despite his attorney's best attempts, he's being forced to to testify in this case. The reasons are a little bit flimsy, I think. They're you know they're they're saying that you know he obviously he didn't write the movie right or he didn't I mean he correct me if I'm wrong the only part he had in the movie was just acting right yeah I I think he is actually a producer too and that's part of the reasons why the plaintiffs were wanting you know were justifying his involvement and and this is a common tactic is the plaintiffs in this case or the plaintiff or the their attorneys they may have no real need for the deposition itself and. But it may be strategic because they know that, okay, you depose this famous actor that is obviously busy. He's going to be pissed off that he's getting wrapped up into this lawsuit that he was just, you know, barely involved in in making. He just did the acting and maybe produced it, but he didn't write the script or anything like that. And right. he definitely didn't have any intention to defame anyone. And he also didn't play the actor that of, of Andrew Green either. So he, he'll, he may put some tremendous pressure on Paramount that I'm sure Paramount wants to maybe use Leonardo DiCaprio in, a, in another movie in the, in the future. And I'm sure as well as these other entities named that it may force them to, to settle. And so it's a very common tactic. And, and obviously you can see how it's made big news, the fact that he has to appear at a deposition. Yeah, the... The plaintiffs are arguing that he's necessary. He's a necessary party to testify because he met with the dire- with the director and the producer and screenwriter in the script development process to discuss scenes and revisions. Scorsese and the the screenwriter have already given their depositions. But I mean, that's to me, that's such a weak argument. Like, so he's gonna <laughs> so Leonardo DiCaprio is gonna meet with these three people, and that somehow. He's going to focus on this one, you know, minute character that nobody even remembers from the movie, basically. And so, like, yeah. I, I mean, I, I get the tact. You know what I really enjoyed about is this, that the plaintiff's lawyers even offered to meet Leonardo in Los Angeles to accommodate his busy schedule. I mean, to me, it's almost just like they just want to meet him in person and like be in the same room with him <laughs> for a day is how that comes off. Because like what? In lieu of a deposition, they're willing to get uh, a signed autograph yeah. or a signed photograph. He can be so he can be so smug too. Like you know, that's what he's gonna be like in these in this deposition. It's just because I don't think he's I don't he's not gonna have I don't think he's gonna have much that's gonna benefit the plaintiff. But yeah, it looks like they're gonna happen. We don't know exactly, but yeah, obviously, you know, there may be something we don't know. But you're probably right. And so. So what's interesting about this case and why we can kind of talk about it, talk about the law a little bit, is def- defamation in general. To kind of break that down, we've talked about it in the past, and we'll touch this as, as well in the sense that uh, we've talked about it in the context of Yelp and these bad reviews and negative reviews that may be defamatory. One of the, one of the elements of a defamatory statement, it has to be of and concerning the plaintiff, or you have to actually prove that that defamatory statements about you. And and so one of the legal issues that was brought up very early in the case with 
Matt alluded to in the motion to dismiss, where most of the cases were most, I think there's only two causes of action, I think, but the only one that left standing was the libel or the defamation. And the issue was, well, this is a movie. Is it really of and concerning the, this Andrew Green or not? Because I'm sure you guys have seen this. You'll see at the end of a movie where it'll say something like, these are all fictional characters and anything that resembles a real life character is mere coincidence or something, some stupid disclaimer like that. And I call it stupid because in reality, it's that in itself is not really going to save you all of a sudden from a defamatory lawsuit just because you put in this disclaimer at the end that, okay, even though this looks real and we made it seem like it's real, it's not really real. And, and so at this point, the judge said that, well, this question of whether or not this movie and this character is, of, quote, of and concerning the plaintiff or of and concerning Andrew Green is a question for the jury. It's not a question of law. And so it depends upon whether or not a judge or a, a jury thinks that it's of and concerning Andrew Green. Right. And so two things here. One, you just hit on it is this isn't saying that it is of and concern. I mean, this is just this is the motion to dismiss. So whether they yeah. assert alleged enough, alleged sufficient facts to to demonstrate this of and concerning element. And so, I mean, the kind of the, the way to, to kind of look at it is, you know, whether a reasonable person could look at it and see some sort of connection. I mean, it's a very, very broad way of putting it, but that's kind of what we're looking at. You know, whether that connection is enough for, yeah, the te- whether a reasonable person viewing the allegedly defamatory work would understand that the character portrayed in the work was in fact the in this case the in andrew green acting as described i mean so basically it's if someone watched the movie would they be able to figure out that this person is supposed to be him if it was i mean that's, that's what it really what it boils down to i like how the judge put it in that Knowing the real person would have no difficulty linking the two superficial similarities are insufficient. Yeah. And I think if they meet all the other elements and just that's the only issue, it's kind of questionable because the the actor was picked because he looked similar to the real Andrew Green. And that's who he played. That's who he was supposed to be. And even though this is supposedly a fictional character, everyone knows it's not really. And and so in the past, there there is some there is some favorable case law in the sense that, you know, when you're parroting something and so forth, and and creating these kind of fictional movies based upon real life events, there there's some leeway. But and, and the Wolf of Wall Street in itself is obviously it seems exaggerated, but then they also make it seem and how it was marketed as if this is how things happened. You know? Yeah. So I don't know. The main guy, the Jordan Belfort, he has to. He had to be involved in the making of this movie, right? I mean, that's that that would be the obvious person who would bring a lawsuit. I mean, he seems pretty in the interview I saw, it seemed like he is in favor of the movie. This is after it came out. He he wasn't sued individually, so that's why I assume I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe he wasn't involved at all. I mean, they had to somehow get the story from somewhere. Yeah, I think if I recall correctly, Jordan Belfort actually wrote a book called Wolf of Wall Street. And, and so in order to, even though he was charged with defrauding investors for more than 200 million, it seems as though he was able to make, a, a, you know, a hundred million just in, well, he's making a hundred million this year. Apparently this was back in 2014, but I think he, I'm pretty sure he made money on the movie as well in selling, selling the script. 
So why is it he? I mean, it's it's interesting that he's not being named as a defendant in this lawsuit. Then maybe he sold the script to whoever, and then they are the ones that are being sued. Okay, so there's one report that he got about one million to sell the movie rights. But yeah, it it is based upon his memoirs. Yeah. So so you're right. It's in theory, it's like okay, if if it's based upon his memoirs and it was really about him and it was not true, then you're right. It seems like he should have been included in the, as a defendant as well. So in this case, obviously, like I said, the story that was in the news this past week was all stuff about Leonardo DiCaprio. It's not a party to the lawsuit. He's just, he was an unwilling participant or an unwilling person that's just involved in, in terms of testifying. But what about, we, there was another case that was uh, decided this past week that was kind of the opposite in that it was a defamation lawsuit, a business owner, actually, I think it was an attorney or a law firm versus a disgruntled customer and a third party really wanted to be involved or I guess wanted to at least assert, yeah, it was involved, wanted to assert its rights and that's Yelp, which we haven't talked about in a while. So real quick rundown of what happened here. Disgruntled customer leaves this uh, negative defamatory review on Yelp under their real name under a, and also under a pseudonym. Eventually, the law firm, the attorney, they sue this individual. They sue her for defamation. Defendant never responds. They get a default judgment. They actually sued for damages, too. I think it was quite a bit. One of the things I also sued injunctive relief, which was for requiring or ordering Yelp to remove the reviews. And Yelp didn't want to do that. And so <laughs> instead of just complying with this one simple request, Yelp fought it based on quite a few grounds, actually. Yeah, First Amendment protections. They also, and we've talked about this many times, the the statutory protections that these types of online companies have, which is under the Communications Decency Act. I think that's commonly referred to as a CDA. And what's interesting, and there might have been some other defenses as well, right? But yeah. Ultimately, it was actually a pretty favorable decision on behalf of those that are, you know, advocates of being able to fight against these negative defamatory reviews that are completely not true. And okay, so and the idea is okay, so what if you get a judgment against the defendant, but that review is still out there mm-hmm. and it's on Yelp? How do you remove it? And in this case, it was a default judgment. So in order to enforce a default judgment against the defendant to make them remove the review. It's a little bit more difficult rather than just going straight to Yelp and saying, hey, look, this is a defamatory statement. You must re- must remove it. And and it's interesting because Yelp in this case was not a party. Right. And they just kind of inserted themselves in there because, okay, all of a sudden there's an injunction that they have to comply with. And so they appealed accordingly and basically told the judge, look, we are immune from liability under the CDA. This violates our First Amendment rights, et cetera. And the judge disagreed that he basically said that, was it a he or she? I'm sorry. Well, the, the court court basically said that the CDA does not apply because this is an injunction. There's no actual liability that, that applies here. And so therefore, CDA doesn't apply and you have to comply with the, the, the order. And the appellate court did send it back to trial court just for kind of a distinction on the judgment in that. So the original judgment was... Yelp had to take down the reviews that she, this person posted and subsequent posts from her or anyone else. I think that was the exact way it was worded. But so basically the, the appellate court said it was, a, it was a little bit overbroad. You can require her to 
removed the reviews that she'd already posted, but in terms of future reviews, that's an overbroad restraint on speech, which, uh, I mean... <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it does, but if it's... If she goes back and posts the exact same thing, then yeah, but then if it stems yeah. from to me, if it stems from the same incident, then what what's the difference? I mean, I get it, but it's at the same time, I, it's a little bit. Yeah, but a court has to be careful, you know. And we've talked about this, yeah. and you can't blanket, you can't prevent her from free speech for, for forever, you know. So I get that aspect of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that and that's called prior restraint, and that's courts are very reluctant to kind of have any kind of order that prevents speech from happening in the first place they'd rather the speech to occur and if it's something that is not permitted to to punish that that speech in itself so in this case yeah like i said it makes sense and so so this case though is 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 a nice blueprint for others that are are seeking kind of restitution or some kind of remedy to you know these kind of defamatory statements online because if you first of all everyone knows if you sue if you sued yelp for liability for for defamation, you would lose, and that's what CDA is for. That's what the Communications Decency Act gives them immunity to. But if you're able to identify the defendant, and by the way, I mean, even if you're not able to identify, we've found ways to to figure that out as well. But if you if you sue somebody for defamation and you win, whether default judgment or, or otherwise, at least in California, it seems though that it seems as though that Yelp will have to comply. Now, whether this applies in every single case or not and across the nation and whether or not this gets appealed, but I think it was a good decision. I don't think the 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 only logic that Yelp had, which possibly has some viable claims, is that they say, well, by imposing the injunction and if we do not comply, we'll be liable. And so therefore the CDA does apply because we have immunity to that liability. And so that's a, it's a clever argument, but in, in this case, the judge didn't buy it. I think overall, it's a, it's a favorable decision for, for businesses and business owners, which is pretty rare in terms of <laughs> dealing with Yelp. But I guess mo- most of the people that have been unsuccessful have sued Yelp directly, right? I mean, for the most part. Yeah. And, and those, those cases suing Yelp directly are always going to fail. I mean, that CDA is just, it's a, it's a federal statute. Yeah, there was one, there was one case that looked promising, but they, it was some sort of procedural issue they screwed up on, or I can't recall, but I, <laughs> well, when I first saw this case, I was questioning because they said the headline said that CDA, CDA did not apply. And we've talked about in the past that if Yelp involved themselves too much in the review and screening of these reviews, then they could be waiving their liability or their immunity to this liability. And we've talked about how Yelp's algorithm, how that works. And, and so they've obviously tested the waters to only involve themselves to the extent that they can, because, and that's why they depend upon this automatic filtering. But if they were to go in there and start removing, you know, things, reviews that they didn't like that, and what whatsoever, then they may open themselves up to liability. But right now, so long as the review complies with their terms of service and mm-hmm. and it's filtered using some stupid algorithm that they think is great, then <laughs> they've been able to remain immune to the liability. Careful what you say. Oh, s- luckily, stupid is definitely an opinion. Yeah. But, well, I, I shouldn't say, well, it, it's pretty <laughs> much fact. Let's just say that. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, uh, I think that's it for for today. Nice Wolf of Wall Street tied with Yelp. 
Didn't, yeah. Didn't think those, those would go together, but they do. All right. Well, keep it sound, keep it smart. This has been the Legally Sound Smart Business Show with your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stop. The Legally Sound Smart Business Show is your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Legally Sound Smart Business is a podcast that is intended but not promised or guaranteed to be current, complete, or up-to-date, and should in no way be taken as an indication of future results. No attorney-client relationship is created by listening or submitting questions to the podcast. The podcast does not constitute legal advice, but rather is offered only for general informational and educational purposes. You should not act or rely on any information in the podcast without first seeking the advice of an attorney. The opinions expressed in the podcast reflect the views of those individuals and do not necessarily represent the views of any other individual or business. For more information about the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, visit LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com.